So the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man, I don't know what that does to your mind if it messes with you, especially as you read through the Gospels. It's, I don't know about you, it seems like there's so many times it's so obvious that he's God. You watch him walk on water, you watch him calm storms, you watch him heal people. Uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of what Jesus did makes it much easier to see God than to see the human part of him. And yet, and yet, there are moments in Jesus' life where he seems very human. And in those moments, not only do we see more of who Jesus is, we actually get a glimpse of us in his life as well. One of those moments happens during the last three days of his life before the cross, which we're looking at in this series. So, hey, listen, if you're here for the first time, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here, and I appreciate you being here this morning. Uh, and I'll tell you, what, one of the things that I've enjoyed over the last several weeks is meeting folks who are new to MCC. And so if that's you today, if this is one of your first times here, I'll be up front. Some of uh, our leaders will be up front after the service. Love to meet you. Uh, that would be great. And if you are watching online, we appreciate you watching there as well. And if you would, I'm going to ask, uh, if you would take a moment and email me, I'd love to meet you as well, uh, just email me at mike at exploremcc.org and uh, just let me know where you're from and if there's something that we can be praying for you or with you, we would love to share that as well. So thanks for joining us. Last week, Adam did a great job uh, of leading us through the Passover and how Jesus took something that was filled, already filled with meaning for his followers and he gave it a new meaning. And if you missed that, I hope that you'll go to our website and check it out. Uh, and so we're going to pick up right where he left off. And as we head into this, I want to make sure you catch this. It's at the very top of your notes if you have your handout uh, ready. The Jewish day of reckoning, uh, when they reckoned time, was sundown to sundown. When we reckon time, a new day starts at what? Right, midnight, right? We're mid Did someone say sun up? <laughs> Your days must be very interesting. Uh, no, from, uh, so from midnight to midnight is when we run our time. So, but when the sun went down on Thursday, that's when Friday began. So this morning, what we're looking at begins on what is Thursday night after supper. And as the sun goes down, we begin to enter into Friday. So Luke chapter 22 is where we are, beginning in verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but Father, I want yours to be done. And then, and then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling on the ground. And when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So again, we're picking up right where Adam left off last week. Jesus took his disciples. I don't know if you noticed in our very first verse, as usual. Those two words come into play uh, later this morning, but he takes them as usual out of the upper room to the Mount of Olives. It was called the Mount of Olives because of the olive orchard that grew on this mountain. So Jerusalem was a city built on top of a hill. There were no rooms for gardens. No rooms, there was no room for gardens in the city, so wealthy citizens 
would build private gardens on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And this particular garden, uh, on this particular garden was a place called Gethsemane. I just want, so a few years ago, I got to go to Israel, and I actually was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and our guide explained, by the way, it's just kind of unreal, surreal to realize that you are, you have to be within 50 feet or so of where Jesus prayed this, this night, to, to realize that you are in geographical, you know, proximity of where he actually was, and then our guide told us that olive trees, uh, they die from the inside out. I don't know if you knew that or not, but they die from the inside out. A new tree grows up in the middle of the old one. The old one dies out, uh, but the new one grows up. It's the roots that don't die. So he said, while these trees were not here when Jesus was in the garden, the root system we have today was there that day. It's just odd to realize you are in the presence of something that was in his presence physically during his ministry time, uh, during this event that we're reading about. But it's those two words, by the way, those two words, as usual, tells us this must have been a place they were familiar with. Undoubtedly, it was a place for them to escape from meditation and prayer. And when you compare the other Gospels, uh, there are other details that unfold. Mark tells us that as Jesus went into the garden with the eleven, he told eight of them to wait. To wait, And then he took Peter, James, and John along with him a little bit further in. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. When the message version, when they write this, it says, he plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony. And I wonder why that was. And because what's about to happen is not a surprise. Jesus was not surprised by the cross. He knew that it was coming. But now, I think the thing is, now it's here. At last, Jesus begins to feel the inevitable. And I began to wonder, what are some things that we dread? I mean, what are things that you dread? Even this, what are some things that you dread? Doing taxes, perhaps? Uh, a trip to the dentist? Colonoscopy? Visit from the in-laws? Purely coincidental, I mentioned those two together. Uh, cleaning the house, right? Maybe it's a phone call in the middle of the night. That when the phone rings in the middle of the night, you just dread that because you don't know what's going on on the other end. Or maybe it's death or pain. As Jesus prays in the garden, there's something he is dreading. And it's not that Jesus doesn't know about or hadn't thought about what is about to happen. He knows full well what is coming. It's just, again, now it's here. And so he says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. I don't know if you feel what Jesus is feeling, if you've ever had that kind of dread, that kind of sorrow in your life, but he is struggling, which is strange, isn't it? But again, he, he, tradition tells us that around the time that Jesus was a teenager, there was a rebellion near where he lived. The Roman army crushed the rebellion, but because they didn't want it to happen again, they wanted to make an example, and so they crucified an Israelite every 33 feet along the road for 10 miles. 1,760 people, dead or dying, nailed to a tree, must have made an incredible impression on a teenage Jesus as he was growing up. Skip Gray in his book, The Way of the Cross, says long before his death, the cross was an ugly, hideous reality. I wonder how many of us brought a cross in with us. I brought mine in with me. This usually sits in my car between my two front seats, uh, and, and just, it just stays there. It just kind of reminds me of who I am and whose I am. And I don't know if that's what yours does. Maybe you have a necklace. Maybe you have a, a cross in your uh, purse or your pocket or something. But I just want to say, 
Back in the first century, it was not a trinket. It wasn't a symbol. It was a 100-pound Roman instrument of death. And when people saw it, it was gruesome. They would shudder. And Jesus knew what had been prophesied about him by Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. In verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then Mark tells us that Jesus asks the three, who is taken further into the garden with him, won't you just stay here and keep watch? You know what he's asking, right? He's asking them to pray with him. And I'm I'm assuming you've asked people to do that as well, or maybe you've had somebody else. They've shared this thought, not those words, but this shot, this, this thought. They, they share what's breaking their heart. Maybe it's they've lost a job or they've had a relationship explode on them. Maybe someone they love is in the hospital or there's some sort of bad news, some sort of horrible news. And they say, would you pray for me? Would you, or they just share that thought with you. And what is your natural response to that? I mean, maybe if they're, if, if they're close by even, you, maybe you drop them a note or you send them an email or you shoot off a text immediately when you hear this. Or, or maybe you make a phone call to them. Or, or even if they're on the other side of the country, you get in a, you, at your own expense, you get in a plane or you get, and you take off and you go visit them. Would, would you just watch with me? That's what Jesus is asking. Just, just, just be with me on this. Pray with me on this. It will really help me to know that you're praying. And in verse 41, it says that Jesus goes about a stone's throw away, and he kneels before the Father, and he prays, if you are willing, take this cup, yet not my will, but yours be done. Take this cup away from me. Why does he refer to the cross as the cup? Have you ever wondered that? Why does he say, take this cup away from me? It's because in the Old Testament, the cup was a symbol of God's wrath. So here's where we begin to understand a little bit better what's breaking Jesus' heart. It's not just the physical pain of what's about to happen, that for our sins, you know, he will take our sins on the cross, the sins of the world. It's, not, it's that he will suffer the wrath of his Father for the first time in his existence. Well, he's always existed. For the first time ever. He's about to feel the wrath of his father. And then Luke tells us two details that none of the other gospels do. In verse 43, it says, an angel appeared to Jesus and strengthened him. I don't know if when you read something like that, you ever wonder which angel it was? I mean, because angels have bowed down before him since before the beginning of time. Who do you suppose had this honor? Maybe it was Gabriel who announced his birth. Maybe he shows up at the end of Jesus's earthly ministry to encourage him to finish well what he started at the manger, how he'd watched him grow up, how all of heaven was in awe of him, even at this moment. Or, or maybe it was Michael. Michael was the warrior in the angelic, or is the warrior in the angelic realm. He's the protector of Israel. And maybe he shows up and he just stands beside him with his sword and his shield ready. I mean, what, if, if you were, what, what did they say? What, what would you have said? if you were one of those angels talking to Jesus. Luke mentions the angels, and then he also mentions the blood falling like drops. His sweat was like drops of blood falling uh, to the ground. Warren Wearsby said he uses, that Luke uses the word like. It may suggest that the sweat merely fell to the ground like clots of of blood. But there is a 
physical phenomenon known as hematidrosis, in which under great emotional stress, the tiny blood vessels uh, rupture in the sweat glands, and they produce this mixture of, of sweat and blood. And maybe it was the stress of this moment that what Jesus knew was about to happen that's causing him this incredible stress. And he gets up and he goes back to his friends who have been praying for him, and he finds out they're not praying at all. They're sleeping. And in our verse, it appears it only happened once, but when you compare the Gospels, it happened three times. But perhaps Jesus understood the heaviness of their eyes because of the lateness of the hour, the, the big meal that Adam talked about last week, the wine that, that was part of that meal. Maybe it was the long day. Maybe it was the long week. Verse 45 says that the apostles were exhausted from sorrow. Something's going on that emotionally has them exhausted and Luke says that while he was talking to them, Judas approached, leading a crowd, and, and we'll look at what happened there next week. But in the garden, we get this look at Jesus. And before we leave, I want to make sure we see ourselves in this garden as well. So on your notes, please catch this. I want to make sure everyone in the room gets this. Everybody in the garden struggled. Everybody who was in that garden that night struggled. And I don't know about you, but it is incredibly easy for me to criticize the 11 because they struggled with staying awake. And it's easy for me to sympathize with Jesus because of his struggle with the cross. But the point that I often miss, and maybe you miss it too, is that Jesus struggled in the garden. This is where we see some of his humanity shining through. He struggled with God, what God wanted him to do, just like the 11 struggled with what Jesus had asked them to do. Like sometimes we struggle with what Jesus asks us to do at times. How many of us have, we've looked at what God calls us to do, or we look at who Jesus calls us to be, and we struggle with that. And my point isn't, look how guilty you should feel because you struggle. My point is, this makes you just like the Son of God. Hebrews 4 tells us this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses because he faced all the same testings that we do. The difference is he never sinned. Everybody, everybody, everybody in the garden, everybody struggled. But I want you to note the difference because there is a difference. Jesus' struggle was with the cross. So don't miss out on that. His struggle was huge. But the disciples, their struggle was with staying awake. There's a little bit of a difference. Jesus' struggle was with the heaviness of the cross. The disciples' struggle was with the heaviness of their eyes. He struggled because he saw what was coming. The disciples struggled because they couldn't see what was coming. He struggled with his total separation from his father for the first time in all of eternity and even more with becoming the object of his father's wrath. He struggled. Jesus struggled with becoming what he had always stood against. He struggled with sin. Their sin, my sin, your sin. And the disciples struggled with wanting to stay awake to pray. You see the difference? <laughs> and you know what? I'm not saying that God will never ask us to do anything big. I'm just wondering if, like me, maybe your struggles are with the little day-to-day -day stuff <laughs> that he calls us to. Have you ever had someone ask you to pray for them? They share something that's going on in their life, and they say, listen, would you pray for me? And you say yes, and then you don't. 
Have you, have you ever been talking to people uh, that you know? Have you ever noticed in the room, maybe there's someone here that you're, you know, you've just never seen them before, and you think to yourself, they may, this may be their first time here. Somebody should make them feel welcome. I should go over and say hi, and you never get out of your chair. Well, or, or, well, you know, the teachers in our kids' classes are doing a great job. I should let them know. But then we pray and you forget, and you get in your car and go home. Sending out the note to someone to let them know you missed them, get wool cards, thinking of you notes, touch on Facebook. It's remembering your spouse and, and, and making sure that you tell them every day that you love them. It's remembering to take time with your kids every day and telling them that you love them and playing with them. Little opportunities that we have at, uh, every day at home, at work, at school, in our neighborhood. You know, more often than not, our struggle is not with saving the world. Our problem is our little piece of the world, and, the, and our struggle is maybe even just with praying. So here's the point of what Jesus is saying, or the point of what is happening here. These little struggles, and Jesus lets his followers know this, they prepare me for the big struggles. If I can't make it through the little struggles, I'm sure as the world not going to make it for the big ones. Because they failed in the garden, here's the point. Because they failed in the garden, they would fail later that night. Verse 40 says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then he repeats it in verse 46. Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Do you know why Jesus said that twice? Because he knew what was about to happen. Later that night, Peter would deny knowing Jesus three times. The last time, using vulgar language to swear, he does not know that man. The other ten would scatter like leaves in the wind when the Roman authorities show up to arrest Jesus. The little struggles prepare you for the big ones. Greg Laurie in his book, The Great Compromise, uh, talked about this 400-year-old redwood. He said one day it came crashing down and no one could figure out why. The tree had survived centuries of storms and lightning and earthquakes. He says, what, what had felled it? He said, on closer inspection... Um, Investigators found that tiny beetles had found their way inside its trunk and they'd been eating away at the life-giving fibers, weakening its mighty bulk from the inside out. And then he writes, in much the same way, the devil tries to bring down Christians through this steady drone of small, seemingly insignificant temptations. And while we're fighting and resisting him in one area, we're actually setting up house with him in other areas of our lives because Satan will find ways to creep in our lives into our lives with the purpose of eroding our foundations until our fibers have been undone and we come crashing to the ground and we've all seen it happen and then he writes this it's in your notes show me a person who has fallen away from their walk with the Lord and I will show you a person who started making compromises in his or her life long ago and Jesus feels this dread and sorrow so heavily on his heart. Can you imagine a sorrow so heavy that the sea-walking, storm-stilling, Satan-defying, death-defeating Son of God groans under the weight of what's going on? What does he do about that? Because whatever he would do is exactly what we should do, right? If he's getting ready to face that. And this might be your next step, by the way, in your faith. But Jesus prepares for what's going to happen by praying. And if you thought there's going to be some crazy idea, some, something you've never thought of before, 
I just want to make sure you catch, Jesus prepares for one of the hardest moments, most difficult struggles, biggest battle in his life by going to his knees, which is exactly what we are called to do. This, by the way, was a regular habit for Jesus. It's back to those words. They leave the upper room and they went to the garden as usual. This is something they've done before. They've gone, they've gone to this very garden before to spend time and pray. We read about Jesus after being with people for a day. He would go off by himself to pray. There were times we read that he would go up into the mountains by himself to pray. There were times when he would take a whole night and he would pray. The question is, is prayer a regular habit for you? Because if you want your prayers to be effective in an emergency, then they need to be preceded by daily, regular prayers. And Jesus knew that the strength he would need to face what was coming was found in the time he spent with his heavenly Father. My friend Jeff Swearingen said this, it's on your notes, prayer strengthens us to face our difficulties more than it changes our circumstances. If we only see prayer as a quick fix solution to whatever struggle you're dealing with, then you have the wrong picture of prayer. God is not a genie in a bottle who just makes everything better. He is a source of strength that makes it possible to navigate through our circumstances. And I think that what Jesus is trying to teach them uh, and warn them is pray now so that when difficult moments come and they're coming, he didn't just say that to them. He's saying that to us. Pray now because when difficult moments come and they're on their way, by the way, you'll be ready. Because Jesus knew that if they didn't pray now, the temptation would be too much and they would fail. If you sleep now, you'll pay later. And the disciples did not know that the battle would not be fought when the soldiers showed up, but it was fought in the quiet of the garden that night. In their hearts, please catch this, in their hearts, these 11 guys wanted to be faithful to Jesus. They were completely sincere in their desire to follow him and to stay loyal to him. But what they didn't understand was just how weak our flesh can be. They were faithful. They were sincere. They were loyal. Are those not, are those not words you want to describe your relationship with Jesus? And yet because they did not spend the time they needed to spend with God in prayer, they failed. In just a few hours, Peter will deny knowing Jesus three times. In just a few moments, all 11 of them will scatter as soon as the soldiers show up. And it is that same human weakness that can cause even the best of us in the room to fail uh, unless we are finding our strength in God. And so the lesson is pretty clear for us that the battle is won or lost in prayer. Consistent, regular, engaged, concentrated prayer where we talk to God about who we are, our weaknesses, our failures. We own those. We go to God and thank him for our strengths and the victories that we've got to enjoy. And we give him the moments that are coming that we know about and the moments that we don't know about. And I want to be very clear about why Jesus was capable of doing this, especially that night. Jesus was able to pray like this because of his love, number one, for God. Please don't miss that. Ken Geyer, who is a Christian author, said something that 
helps me understand this moment. He said that more than Jesus feared the cup, he loved the hand from which it came. More than he feared what was about to happen, he loved the one who was calling him to do it. He loves his father more than he dreaded the cross. Please don't miss that. But the second reason he was able to pray like that was you and me. Max Lucado writes that when Jesus stepped into the garden, you were in his prayers. As he looked into heaven, you were in his vision. As he dreamed of the day when we will be where he is, he already saw you there. And in the garden, he decided he would rather go to hell for you than heaven without you. If you want to know why he could pray like that, knowing what was about to happen, he decided in the garden he would rather go to hell for you than heaven without you. Several years ago, there was a church that performed drama. It was around Easter time. It was about a carpenter's family who lived in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus and needing money. The Jewish carpenter had agreed to be employed by the Romans to make crosses. And even his son, who was only 10 years old at the time, helped in the carpentry shop, so helped his, the son helped the father make the crosses. And near the end of the play, the little boy comes running into the dad's shop, crying as though his heart was breaking. And when his family asked why he was so upset, he sobbed that he had just seen a mob take Jesus, had just dragged him away to be crucified. Now, this family had heard Jesus. They'd heard him teach. They, some of their family members had been healed. They loved Jesus. And now this, sad, this news was just heartbreaking to them. And their son looked up at them and said, but there's more. Dad, they crucified Jesus on one of our crosses. And the father, you know, froze momentarily. And then he tried to soothe his son. He said, honey, listen, there are dozens of carpenters all across the city who are working with the, with the Romans. And all of those crosses look basically the same. And his son said, but dad, the one we made last week, I did what any great artist would do. I was so proud of the work that we had done. I wrote my name on the cross. And as Jesus was carrying the cross up the hill, he fell in front of me. And I saw my name on his cross. I saw my name on his cross. And so we stop every week to remind each other, to remind ourselves, our name was on that cross too. That this decision he made wasn't about something 2,000 years ago. It was about someone today, and that someone is you, and that someone is me. And so in a moment, we receive this bread that reminds us of his body that was broken, the, the cup of juice that reminds us of his, his blood that was spilled on the cross. And we stop every week in worship. And part of what I love, there's a danger to that, by the way, that this can just become another one of those moments. But the upside is you are never more than six days away from being reminded this isn't just a story in a book. This isn't just something that happened in history. 
This is someone who gave their life for you. And so I remember he gave his life for me. And I never want to forget that. So we remember. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Not, not just for this moment, although thank you for this moment. And if all we got to do was retell the story, just to hear it read again, to hear it talked about, maybe to have it fleshed out for the first time in a way that we've not heard some of these details before, or maybe to have the, the as we put the Gospels together, to hear the different pieces of it put in place. But it's more than that. Because this is a moment where we get to be reminded our name was on that cross. And so, God, as we come together now, we remember the, the cup, the cost that Jesus would carry and that he would live for and that he would die for and thankfully be raised three days later for. So, God, thank you for loving us so much. And, Jesus, thank you for being willing to bear our sins on that cross that day, that we might come before you on a day like today and worship you and love you back. So we pray for this moment as we hold these emblems that take us back and remind us of today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, your name, your powerful, loving, forgiving name. Amen.